Hello. And welcome to Pop Tarts. Thank Thank you. If I did an audiobook and I had Method Man in it, there's a gay dad couple in the puppet world. I want to live in Flamin' Hot Cheeto world. Well, bien sûr, mais c'est Paris. <laughs> the rimming station. Because you had hamburgers with Joey Ramon. I'm Emily Rems. I'm Callie Watt. We are both editors of Bust Magazine in Brooklyn, New York. We love talking to each other about pop culture. We love talking to you about pop culture. And I'm so excited to talk to our guest today. For decades, Sophia Chang worked behind the scenes, helping famous men advance their careers as a record executive, a producer, and a manager including for Wu-Tang Clan's RZA, Jizza, and the ODB, A Tribe Called Quest, Raphael Sadiq, and D'Angelo. Her relationship with the Wu-Tang Clan led her to a transformational journey, studying Shaolin Kung Fu. And now, in her new Audible original memoir, The Baddest Bitch in the Room, she shares all the lessons she learned in the trenches of the music business and how she finally put her own talents center stage. Welcome, Sophia. We're so happy to have you here. Thank you so much for having me. I'm delighted to be here. You've had truly an extraordinary life, which I just immersed myself in for seven and a half hours. Thank you for listening. And I I loved every minute of it. Thank you. Um, You were managing members of Wu-Tang Clan. You were managing New York's Shaolin Temple. USA Shaolin Temple, yes. And you were managing huge projects like Paul Simon Benefits and Project Runway shows. What made you finally decide to stop and tell your own story in audiobook form, no less? In 2014, I started working at the Universal Music Group, and I took on a bunch of young women as mentees. They were fresh out of college, literally 22, just out of college. And at that point, I was pretty much 50. And I understood that my experiences, my vast and frankly varied experiences in the workplace and as a working mother and as a single working mother could be instructive and could be helpful. And then Lean In came out. And Lean In, frankly, is not written from my perspective. Not mine either. And it's not written for me either. Mm -hmm. And that's, you know, that's no diss, but it's just, there were some things in that book that resonated with me, but it's it's a very specific perspective. Mm -hmm. And so I was, thought, you know what? I kind of want to write a Lean In for women of color. And that is... That's kind of how it started, but then it pretty much turned into a traditional memoir. But I would say that mine is, in some ways, a prescriptive memoir. I don't know if you found that in listening to it, but I try for it not just to be about my life. And then in 1974 and then in 1981, but I try to infuse it with the gems of wisdom that I've picked up along the way. I knew that by doing an audiobook first, by doing an Audible original, I was doing something untraditional and a little bit risky. But, uh, you know, I'm <laughs> I don't care about doing things the traditional way. <laughs> I'm not hemmed in by, you know, aren't you afraid of this or aren't you afraid of that? I hope you picked that up from my memoir, which is kind of... I did. Good. It's kind of one of the lessons (laughs) is to be more fearless. And I knew from the very first call that I had with Jessica Alman Gallant, who ended up being my editor, literally the first phone call within five minutes, I said, if I did an audio book, can I have Method Man in it? So the story... (laughs) (laughs) Who would say no? she, She was like... Um, so if you recall, the story that opens the memoir is he and I in the studio. Yes. And from the day that I conceived of this book, I knew that that story would open the memoir. Not necessarily because he's Method Man and he's so famous and six foot four and possibly handsome, but because of the significance of that story, because I am a minority within a minority within a minority, right? Meaning I'm a woman, an Asian woman, within the music business, but also within the black music business. So, it, you know, the, 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 there are boxes and boxes and boxes mm-hmm. there. And I knew that he would do the, 
dialogue. And there are very few people that have actually done what I have done in terms of incorporating the characters themselves to read their dialogue. I also that for me was so exciting. Was it I fun? Never listen. And I, I'm like a fan of audiobooks. I like to listen to books during my commute, and I've never heard one with these kind of cameos in them Thank before. You. I was like, "Is this chick kidding me with this?" Like <laughs> that you, ha- I mean, you just mentioned that Method Man's in there, Riza's in there, yeah. Jizz is in there, Ghostface, Q-Tip. Not to mention your mom. My mom. I was so into your mom. Well, listen, you know what? My mother was so nervous and I, was, I wasn't sure because, you know, my mother, English is a second language for her and I've never actually asked her to read out loud. So my mother is hyper literate and she read all the classics in English. Like my mother read Tolstoy in English. She read Jane Austen in English and she can speak English with an accent, but... When I asked her to read aloud, it was much more difficult than I had anticipated. And I actually debated, you know, maybe because she's not that fluid in it, taking her out. But I left her in there because... Oh, I thought she was so great. You thought it was... Okay, I'm so happy to hear I that. I loved her part. There are the voices, sound effects, score. I have music cues in there. I mean, all of these elements together, I am saying... I am saying I think it's the first time that anybody has combined all of these elements. I've never heard it before. Yeah, I need. And so- I am a fan of the genre. Thank you. I need someone else to. I need someone else from out there to tell me who did it first, because as far as I'm saying, I'm the fucking first one to do it. <laughs> and even if someone else has done it, nobody's done it with the roster of talent that you brought to the table. Arm, stretched at the mixing? No, scratched it. Ah. So DJ Scratch is probably the greatest Scratch DJ in the world. He was EPMD's DJ and then went on to become a producer. And he's the best turntablist I've ever seen. And he was like, I'm down. And it was really, really amazing. I think that one of the pleasures of putting this project together was just being able to honor my friendships. Uh Yeah, you know, and honor people's stories, like telling my mother's story of escaping from North Korea, which I'd never heard in in detail until I wrote. Really? Absolutely. Wow. Was, you know, being able to say that, and I always say my name is Sophia Chang, and I was raised by Wu-Tang, and I always knew that, but I don't think I knew the profundity and the veracity of that statement until I wrote this, and then it was really resonant. And then another label, another layer of the experience is that you are telling us your own story and then when you get to the emotional parts you let yourself become emotional you let us hear you cry and we cry right along with you did you you cry i got verklempt oh thank you oh my gosh there were some really poignant moments and when you choke up saying it yeah then i'm gonna you know as you know, someone with human empathy, right? <laughs> someone with a heart. <laughs> I'm like, I'm right there with oh, you. And I just, you. I wonder what it's like. I don't know if you've heard the whole thing together and like what it's like to hear yourself and your communal, you know, circle of friends and family being so open and so vulnerable in this audio format. So knowing that we're all out there here. Right. Um, I knew, in fact, it's, stipulated in my contract I said that if I do an audiobook I have to read it because I knew that only I could transmit the emotion the way that was necessary whether it was high emotion and delight or whether it was heartbreak or disappointment or betrayal or loss and and and, and audible said the same thing they were like we're not doing this unless you read the voices um you know I've been doing public speaking for a while and that's actually what I was put on this planet to do is to do public speaking. So I've gotten over that. Remember when we had answering machines and you'd mm-hmm. listen to your own voice and you cringe, <laughs> like I can't stand this out of my voice. And I was one of those people. And then I came to love my voice and very comfortable listening to it. And so in going back and listening to the seven and a half hours and everybody else's voices and hearing myself cry and get so emotional, I still cry. I just listened to it yesterday and I, like I could start crying right now thinking about talking oh, yeah. about Chris Lighty, God rest his soul, talking about the moment that I lost my father and my mother knowing. And it was imperceptible. He was barely breathing and she just said, I think daddy just died. And she knew. And there was just something so... there. I simply don't know. I could have done that 
20 times and I would have cried. Mm -hmm. And I knew that I would cry going into it. But I think, um, you know, I participated in a podcast about Chris Lighty called Mogul. And it was a six-part series. And I was, I think, in the last two episodes. And I cried in, in talking about him. And the producers said the feedback they got was that I was the most emotionally compelling because I kind of let myself be open, but I also don't know how to be otherwise. Yeah. Uh-huh. You know, I always tell people... Why fight it? You know, there's so there's there's virtually no daylight between the way I write and the way I speak. And so I hope what my listeners get in terms of the audio experience is just a sense of like... You're kind of in the room with me, but you're also kind of listening to this movie because of all of the soundscaping. Yeah, yeah it definitely makes the movie play in your head. Thank you. Definitely. I'm so grateful to hear that. Actually, the part that made the movie play especially vividly in my head, and I just need you to tell this story to our listeners because I love it so much. The part about your first time in New York and how the, your first time in New York led to you living in New York was a fairy tale the likes of which I've never heard in the history of New York City origin stories. My mouth was literally open on the subway. I ran home and told our luscious recording engineer, <laughs> Logan Del Fuego, all about it. Luscious Logan. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> and I, I would love for you to tell our listeners how about your first time in New York and how that led to you making a life here in New York, if you wouldn't mind. Because sure. it's literally the best thing I've ever heard of. <laughs> I'm so happy to hear that. I'll give you a little bit of context. I'm a child of Korean immigrants, born and raised in Vancouver. I was definitely supposed to go into academia. I was a French major. I knew that I wanted to leave Vancouver and kind of go into a major city. And so as a French major, I thought, well, bien sûr, mais c'est Paris. And then I went to Paris and I met the French. And the other city, naturally, especially after having heard the message by Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five, which is the song that changed my life, New York was the other natural fit. And the first time I came to New York, it was my final year of college. I was visiting my brother's friend, Steve Palmer, who was doing, um, who was doing his graduate degree in sociology at Columbia. And I said, let's go to the Ritz, which is now Webster Hall. And the Ritz was the place to see bands back in the day. The place. Everybody performed there. I, was, I had a crush on this singer from this... Blue-eyed soul group, and I had this ridiculous fantasy that I would see him walking down St. Mark's, or maybe I would see him at this venue. And so we go there, and the the band is already finished playing. I don't even remember who it was, and we're leaving, and I'm so crushed. I'm thinking, oh my god, I'm not going to meet anybody famous while I'm here. And Steve Palmer points down to the stage because we're in the balcony, and he says, Sophia, isn't that Johnny Ramone? That's Johnny Ramone. I was like, oh shit, it's Johnny Ramone. And for any of the listeners who don't know who the Ramones are, they are essentially the group from New York City, they're from Queens originally, and they were, they birthed punk. So I rushed downstairs, and I'm like a salmon swimming upstream because I'm going against a crowd who are all going for the exits, and he's standing by the stage. So I race up to him, I just stick out my right hand, and I say, and with all the confidence in the world, hi, my name is Sophia Chang, you're Johnny Ramone. (laughs) And he just looked down at me, and he said, I'm Joey. And it was such a moment, you know, it's, it's, it's really, it's like getting Paul Simon mixed up with Art Garfunkel or like you, nobody, nobody could possibly do that. It was such a faux pas, but then I just wore him down with my, I don't know, I just talked him down and we ended up going out for hamburgers and playing each other music on the jukebox. We stayed in touch. And when I came back to New York, he had me stay with his friend Legs McNeil, who was a legendary music critic and his then girlfriend Carol and Carol worked for Paul Simon's tour managers at the time and she got me a job there at Paul Simon I meet the mighty Mo Waston the greatest record company man of all time who ran Warner Brothers Records his his right hand Lenny Warnker and his son Michael Austin who became one of my closest friends and my mentor who has mentored me for 32 years and that single act of intrepidity and faux pasishness <laughs> that really set off everything else in motion because Michael, as my mentor, has brought me into every room that I've ever been in. Because you had hamburgers with Joey Ramone. I made Joey Ramone laugh. Oh. And Joey just had this laugh that was so, you know, I would say something goofy and he'd just be like, huh, huh, huh. <laughs> 
<laughs> and it was almost <laughs> if it was as if it was forced, but I actually think that that's how Joey laughed. And I would call him from Vancouver and we would just talk for hours and I would just kind of make him laugh. And that was, that's just one of the most delightful experiences I've ever had. I love everything about that story. Thank Every you. single thing about it. <laughs> <sighs> I also love the way that you describe how your love of hip hop and your deep insider knowledge of the industry made you a super valuable associate to all, all the members of the Wu-Tang Clan. And then in exchange, their deep interest in Kung Fu was something that they passed on to you. And they set you on this path towards a deeper connection with your own Asian heritage. I just thought that was such an amazing turn of events. Listening to it, it made me, I was listening to that, this symbiotic relationship. Yes. And I was thinking about all of the uproar around cultural appropriation that yes. we're grappling with these days and how, you know, maybe this back and forth that you had with members of the Wu-Tang Clan would have possibly been shunned if it was blossoming now as opposed to when mm. it happened. What are your thoughts on the differences between cultural appreciation and cultural appropriation? So I don't know that I'm really smart enough to talk about this in any kind of academic way, but I will tell you that I think it would feel very different in, in, any, in anything um, when, first of all, I think there's, I think cultures appropriate each other all the time. But in terms of hip hop or kung fu, I think it would feel very different to me, frankly, if it was a white artist. Mm -hmm. I think that because, because of colonialism, somewhere in there, imperialism, because of centuries of this practice, right, mm -hmm. that it feels very different when the dominant culture appropriates other cultures and I have a very 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 smart friend named Kevin Brineal he teaches he was one he was my first roommate uh, in New York he teaches critical race studies at Babson College and I've had conversations with him about it and he said look Sophia I have three kind of markers for what I consider to be cultural appropriation and I have a mnemonic device for it I think that's what it's called it's DEE -E, right if it has denigration Mm -hmm. erasure or exploitation mm -hmm. and I think if you look at Wu-Tang Clan and how they treated Kung Fu there is none of that present mm -hmm. they absolutely did not denigrate mm -hmm. martial arts or the John Woo movies that whole Hong Kong amazing Hong Kong action cinema tradition right they did the opposite right they uplifted it and they didn't erase it because I think I just told Riza this the other day. If it wasn't for Wu-Tang Clan, I don't think we would have Rush Hour. If it wasn't for Wu-Tang Clan, mm -hmm. I don't think we, had, we, we would have Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. Mm -hmm. I agree. I think that, you know, I always say that Riza kind of broke open, Riza and, of course, by extension, Wu-Tang Clan, broke open kung fu movies. Because in my experience, once I moved to New York, every black man I met who grew up in New York City grew up watching kung fu movies every Saturday on Channel 5, I believe. So it was almost in the DNA of their history and their culture. But that wasn't necessarily the experience of every other New Yorker that I met. Right. Mm -hmm. And so, and certainly not of all Americans, right? And so I think they brought it to the forefront and they sparked a curiosity around it. So I don't, and I also don't think it's exploitation because again, it's, they're not acting like it doesn't exist. And it's certainly not erasure, again. Right. Mm -hmm. So in the conversations that we have, you know, somebody asked me about uh, a Nicki Minaj video and and song and um, Amigo song and it called Stir Fry. And I said, you know, I don't I don't have a problem with that. Or Kendrick Lamar coming out as Kung Fu Kenny at Coachella, because there's no part of it that looks like it's ridiculing. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. There's and again, there's no part of. And I saw Kendrick's show. He was not denigrating. He was not exploiting. He was not erasing. There was none of that. And I think that for me as an Asian, I am grateful for these representations. I don't feel like there's mockery going on. And again, I, I, don't, I cannot tell you historically really or pinpoint it for you in terms of sociology or world history. I just know that it feels different to me when people of color do it 
and when white people do it because of their because they are the global dominant culture. Mm-hmm. And you open your book with an instance of you being in the recording studio with Wu-Tang and someone literally, you know, clocking you right away and questioning who you are and what you're about. Yeah. And if you imagine Wu-Tang, there are nine guys. Six of them are over six feet tall. They are big. And some people might think scary. And then in the midst of them, there's this petite Asian woman that (laughs) looks so out of place, like... I can find Waldo. She's right fucking there. Like (laughs) (laughs) Sophia Chang is really not hard to spot here. This was super early. Method Man had just gotten his video for his song Method Man. And I went to the studio and he pulled me in and he was so excited. He said, Sophie, Sophie, you've got to see my video. And I sit in there and there's Jamal sitting right where Luscious where Luscious is sitting, (laughs) staring at me, and the television is right here, and he's just staring at me and, and he's just giving me this glare in this way and then he asked me the question that all people of color dread not dread but we're, we're used to and we know what it means where are you from where are you from so to most people that seems like a relatively innocuous question but as people of color we hear it all the time right and you know it's very much saying It's not asking the question. It's saying, you don't belong here. Mm -hmm. And so Method Man's defense of me and how just vociferous he was about it. He was so angry. It was so stunning. And that he just leapt in like that was so incredibly amazing to me because of how astute he was. Because he's an empath. He's like my son. He's a Pisces. He's deeply empathetic, so he can read energy very, very well. Mm-hmm. But he also understood the racial subtext of the question. Mm-hmm. And I just, he'll always be this for me. I call him my whooper hero. You know? He's like my bodyguard. I just, I literally saw him yesterday. He's like the platonic love of my life, and I would do anything for that man. Oh, yeah. that's, that's so sweet. So sweet. That's I love I that. I just saw his wife the other night, and I love her too. So the, I would say the central portion of the book discusses how because of your association with the Wu-Tang Clan you sought out instruction in Shaolin Kung Fu and your instructor uh, became the uh, your partner your husband the father of your children yes and as a result of his association with you and your business savvy and acumen you built the Shaolin Kung Fu Center yeah. of New York yeah. and you, you know, made him uh, a media entity that he never was before. And you created this huge center. And then when your relationship with him dissolved, it wasn't just the relationship that you were losing. It was this entire community that you essentially had built. And I just felt that it was an injustice. <laughs> and I also was just really curious about, you know, you mentioned in the book that Shaolin Kung Fu is, it's not just like some form of exercise. It's a spiritual practice derived from Chan Buddhism. Yes. yes. And so being, and the way you described it, your partner was basically the spiritual leader yes. of this movement in New York. Yes. Um, when you are romantically involved with a spiritual leader and then break up, what happens to your spiritual life? What happens to your spiritual community? How do you move on spiritually on your own from that? That's probably the difference between a cult <laughs> and a true spiritual philosophical practice. Uh-huh. Meaning a real master, as my ex was, he's a Chan Buddhist master. He reached enlightenment. I have no doubt about that. The lessons that he imparted to me, the greatest spiritual lessons of my life, if he taught me well, and he did, they stay with me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They go with me like my children are with me. They're, my kids are with me right now. doesn't matter how far away we are. doesn't matter how big they get. My children are always with me. And the lessons that he imparted to me remain with me and I move with them and I am forever grateful to him for all of those things that he taught me and he taught me Shaolin Kung Fu. In terms of it striking you as unfair, I will say that what I felt 
the most betrayed by were the close friends. Mm. So the community, the people that I trained with, that's their shifu, that's their master. I get that. And, mm-hmm. and we were never really close friends, right? They were, that wasn't necessarily the relationship, but there were friends that we met together that we spent real time with. They were in my house. We cooked together. They spent time with my children. And, you know, somebody said to me when we first split up, watch who you lose in the divorce. Mm -hmm. Now, we were never formally married, but I'm using these terms, okay, marriage and divorce. And I thought, oh, I wonder what that means. Oh, I know what the fuck that means. (laughs) And so, look, Shri Yanming is his name. He's a 34th generation Shaolin monk, the greatest martial artist I've ever seen, and I've seen the best. He is a force of nature, and he is an incredible teacher and a master. And I understand why you would be drawn to him. I think what was disappointing and hurtful was that you felt you had to make a choice. Yeah, yeah. Right? That somehow this was a zero-sum game. And there can only be one half of this couple in my life. And that was, that was definitely disappointing. And I think the other thing that was really hurtful now... I built that house. Yeah. Have no doubt about it. I built that fucking house. There is no way the USA Shaolin Temple would be as big as it is if it wasn't for me. Now, there's no way that I could build the USA Shaolin Temple without Shri Ming either. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying I could have, like, spun this out of gold with anybody that put on the orange robes. And so I was the, I call myself a matriarchitect because I was a matriarch of that place, and I was the fucking architect, too. I... I made the t-shirts, I set the schedule, I wrote the rules, I made the, I made the uniforms, I ordered the sneakers, I did all of that. And that's, that's not an indictment of him at all. That, that's a role that I took on willingly. He's not supposed to do that. I'm supposed to do that as the manager of the temple. And so to walk back into the house that I built mm-hmm. and be persona non fucking grata. It's disrespectful. It's totally disrespectful. When I walked in, and it was clear that it was over between Yan Ming and I. And these two guys just barreled up to the front and they just stood in front of me like two bodyguards. And I was like, word? (laughs) (laughs) That's what the fuck we're doing right now? Because like two weeks ago, you were giving me all of the respect that I deserved. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And now suddenly, you're not? Because I'm a different, I'm not a different fucking person. You wouldn't be wearing that fucking uniform if it wasn't for me, B. You wouldn't have those sneakers on if it wasn't for me. And And to watch people just do a 180 like that, I thought, wow, those are the people that I have the biggest issue with. Not yeah. with Yan Ming. It is with them. And talk about erasure. Yeah. While I have you here, I have some curiosity about the Wu-Tang Clan that I feel like you are in a unique capacity to address. I, I find the circumstances around ODB's death so sad for yes. lack of a better word and there's a lot of especially now there's a lot of documentary action happening around Wu-Tang and there's you know a lot of journalists and documentarians saying you know they were a family and their love was very deep and real and they looked out for each other and they cared for each other and I you know you can sort of sense that viscerally through the music and sure. through the course of their careers but then there's also this competing narrative saying that you know ODB was schizophrenic he was very sick and he was he went through a lot when he was incarcerated and right. he went through severe trauma and nobody came to his aid nobody helped him nobody visited him mm-hmm. and the deep pit of um trying to medicate his trauma is what led to his death and maybe some of that trauma could have been alleviated if members of Wu-Tang had been more supportive of him when he needed them mm-hmm. and you know hindsight is always twenty twenty, and I you know I would never put blame on anyone but sure. the narrative the competing narratives are confusing I'm wondering as an insider if you can address any of those competing stories so I think what speaks best to that is Riz's eulogy at his funeral. You know, Riza got up at the funeral and stood in front of hundreds of people and said, when I think about Asan, because that's what he called him, Asan Unique was his righteous 5% name, I will take part of the blame. Because Dirty said to me, yo, I'm 
dying. Mm-hmm. And I didn't pay attention. Riza said, I didn't pay attention. I just kind of, you know, oh, that's just dirty. You know, he's just, he's just saying that. And probably a number of people feel that way. And what I have learned, because, you know, I also lost Chris Lighty, God rest his soul, to suicide. And I feel like I really want to, especially after I lost Chris, I really want to break open the conversation around substance abuse, addiction, mental health, and suicide in hip-hop. And I guess more broadly in the black community, but I'm also, I'm only, I'm only, I'm only, I only have a proximity really to hip hop. And I think the, from what I've read and from the research I've done and from what my friends tell me, you know, um, and I can certainly say this from the Asian community as well, mental health is so stigmatized mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and it's not something that people speak about openly and I think you have a whole generation of rappers and their fans who think it's okay to brag about taking prescription drugs. Oh yeah. Right. And I don't know that I don't know that there's such thing as somebody that casually takes opioids. <laughs> right. It's an opioid. I think that there are a lot of opioid addicts out there and I think that we will continue to lose talent unless we break open this conversation and address it and have people talk about it openly. And there are artists that have talked about it. I believe Kid Cudi has talked about it. I think he Uh checked himself into rehab. Um, You know, mental illness is an illness. Mm -hmm. Depression is an illness. Addiction is an illness. And if we look at it as a weakness, oh, you're just weak, stop drinking. That's not how this works. Mm-hmm. It, is, it is actually a physical illness. And we have to stop stigmatizing it as something that is just, it's, there's something wrong with you. It's, that's, not, that's not what happens. And so people either have addictive personalities or they don't. ODB, God rest his soul, had an addictive personality. There are many drug addicts out there that do drugs, not even to get high anymore. Just to get well. Just to feel normal. Yeah, that's so crazy. Because that's what normal feels like to them. Can you imagine being so addicted to a substance that you have to use it just to feel fucking normal? But I do think there are people in this industry who want to stay on the gravy train. So rather than coming to you and saying, honey, I think you've got a problem. Mm-hmm. I think we need to talk about it because I'm afraid that you're going to be like, really, Sophia? Fuck you, you're out. Right. Then mm-hmm. I don't get the VIP access. Right. Then I don't get to not wait outside the club. Then I don't get my dick sucked on the bus, right? <laughs> then I don't get the free sneakers, the free weed, the Patron and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. I'm so afraid of jeopardizing my position with you and you are my access to the what I consider to be the good life, mm-hmm. yeah. right? And so you're scared. And, you know, a lot of artists tend to surround themselves with sycophants because they don't actually, you know, they get narcissistic and they get big-headed and they get egotistical and they don't necessarily want to hear somebody say, I don't, I don't know about that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so there's just, there's a whole culture that I think is really scary mm-hmm. and it's just not addressed. Well, thank you for addressing it. Yeah. Thank you. I mean, it, yeah. Thank you. And something that you were just talking about actually just dovetails perfectly into what I wanted to ask you about. There's a whole culture, especially here in New York and in places like L.A., you were talking about a culture that Callie and I are both a part of that. And you described it so vividly. I guess it's what I what you would you were just talking about. It's what I call fame adjacent. Callie and I and I suspect you we can walk down the street and nobody bothers us or wants to take selfies with us. But. Our names are on the list at a lot of places. We can go backstage at certain places. Living it up. We can. (laughs) It's this weird liminal space where like we're in fancy places with fancy people, but we're also anonymous. And like we've been to like the fanciest restaurants, but only if some corporate entity is paying for us to do so. And meanwhile, like we're worried about paying the rent on our tiny, (laughs) tiny, tiny apartments. And we're hobnobbing with like, for lack of a better word, the rich and famous. Like we 
have met and talked to you and hung out with the rich and famous as part of our jobs for decades. Mm-hmm. But we're also, Callie's got her Tupperware game and her purse is on point for whenever she goes to a fancy party. Yes, She's I got was pissed. I left it at a, my Tupperware at home and at a barbecue festival this weekend. Oh I was man. So mad at myself. That was your, but you've, you've gotten some of those nice little past hors d'oeuvres for lunch the next day. Yep. That's like I'll your jam. And fill it up with whiskey. And, yes. and I find that, and you know, it's not exclusively so, but there's this world of the fame adjacent. And when you're talking about those of us who are, um, you know, really struggling financially, we're women and we're support people for an industry that doesn't fairly support us back. And I just wonder if you, cause you described this, this life that we live so well, just if you have as the baddest bitch in the room, if you have advice for us on how we can get ours, how can we get ahead um, <laughs> in this fame adjacent floating world that we reside in here in new york city um yeah i i'm i'm very familiar with the animal there was a time when my parents had to help me pay the rent and i was in my 40s oh i don't know sophia was this the plan that when you were 45 (laughs) we're gonna send you a fucking check every month to pay your rent i think i mean i have feelings about fame Uh uh-huh i'm about to be famous i have no doubt about that I never wanted to be famous. There was a time when I Googled, would Google myself, and if I saw a picture of myself, I would reach out to whoever posted it and said, say, take it off. Wow. There was a time when in- my Instagram page was private. But again, going back to me deciding, I'm going to write this book, mm-hmm. right? I'm going to publish my memoir because I finally understood how I could be in service of other people. And therefore, I chose, and it was a very conscious decision, to abdicate my anonymity. And I know the price you pay for that. Sonia, God rest her soul, Sonia Chang, my mentor, told me when she worked for Paul Simon in 1987, she said, cherish your anonymity, Soph. And this was long before cell phones and social media. So the sense of, you know, I've been fame adjacent for long enough to know that it's not all that it's cracked up to be. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, don't get me wrong. There are great things about being famous. Fancy parties, not paying for shit. You know, the irony is the more famous and the more rich you get, the more free shit you get. Well, how about giving that free shit to the broke motherfuckers? <laughs> right. <laughs> right. That's what I'm trying to say. <laughs> Absolutely. So, yes. And, and I enjoy hanging out with famous people. Many people are famous for an actual reason as opposed to some of the fame that we see going on now. And those actual reasons being talent or being creative. And I like being around those people, Right. But in terms of what I would say as the baddest bitch in the room of how to get yours for the women out there, there are a number of things that I prescribe. One, claim your shit. Mm -hmm. Take credit. Now, my mentor, Michael Austin, taught me to give credit where credit is due, and he did that so many times for me. You know, we would be on a conference call and someone would say, oh, Michael, great job, whatever. And Michael would say, oh, no, 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 no. That was all Sophia. Take credit for what you've done. Because if you don't, it is highly likely that a mediocre man will claim credit. Mm-hmm. And they don't even know that they're doing it. They just, they just do it. The other thing is to find, surround yourself with a community that loves you and believes in you. Because there are times when it gets really fucking hard. Yeah when you are broke or you've just been fired or you've just gone through a breakup or any of those kind of the emotional things that we go through that are disappointing and that let us down and you need to be buoyed. You need to be buoyed. And for me, I always say it took a motherfucking village to raise Sophia Chang. And how you present yourself to others is how you will be perceived. Mm-hmm. How you value yourself is how you will be valued. And for the women out there, Learn to negotiate. Mm-hmm. Learn how to negotiate. We are taught as women to be great. I'm think I'm so happy to have this job. I feel so lucky to have this job. That's the corporate mindfuck, and that's patriarchy. Yeah. Right? And my feeling is, no, motherfucker, you're lucky to have me. You yeah. have Sophia Chang. Pay me for that shit. I'm grateful for the job, but pay me for what I'm doing. And we are so told that we don't have power, that we start to internalize that and believe that, 
right? That we sometimes need somebody else to say, you're so smart, that would, you did such a great job. I feel this is so true that you're just saying <laughs> this. <laughs> so yes. Callie is a genius, it yes. is true. Oh, there you go, you. and so you need people to Gas say, Callie is a genius, you know? One thing that I truly appreciated about your book is that you explicitly call yourself a feminist. And I appreciate that very much. And I was wondering how your feminism first came to be and how your career has influenced that feminism and caused it to evolve. The first woman that I met who called herself a feminist was Joan Morgan. And she's still one of my closest friends. She's a brilliant writer. She's an academic. And when she started writing a long time ago, The Village Voice, you know, she called, uh, she called herself a hip-hop feminist. Mm -hmm. And I remember for years, until relatively recently, I was scared to call myself a feminist because I didn't know that I could pass the purity test. I'm not an academic feminist. There were no classes, women's studies classes, when I was growing up. So I haven't read all the books. I don't know the canon. But if you break it down and you just distill it to its simplest form, which is believing that we are equal, that we deserve equal, that we deserve to be valued and to be seen. Yes, I'm a feminist. And I frankly think that anybody walking in this world that doesn't call themselves a feminist, you're kind of a fucking asshole. <laughs> because the other side of that is that you're sexist. Just because you don't call me a chink doesn't mean you're not a racist. What I feel now, and my girlfriend Treva Lindsay taught me this, is that it's not enough simply not to be racist. We have to be actively anti-racist. Mm -hmm. We have to be actively anti-misogyny, anti-patriarchy. And for me, what that means is unlearning so much of what I've learned. Yeah. And it's what I call deprogramming. You know, I have to deprogram myself because I have internalized all those messages. Racism, white supremacy, patriarchy, misogyny, homophobia, transphobia, ableism, all of those things. I've, I've internalized all of it. Now, I'm not saying that I'm overtly any of those things, but those myriad messages have come through because the dominant culture has fed me that since I was a child. Mm -hmm. And so now I'm unlearning those things. And how do I unlearn those things? By talking to the people that are smarter than me. And that's how I came to claim the term and I'm proud of it, and I certainly hope if somebody asked my 19-year-old son if he was a feminist, that he would say yes. And my 17-year-old daughter, if she was a feminist, that she would say yes because she understands what it, what it means. And I, I, I wear the badge with pride, and I just think that it's really important that we all claim it and understand what it means. And again, in our feminism, we have to be actively feminist. So what does it mean? It means that you hire women to be on your team. That if they say hire a man, I'll say, get me a woman. And I also <laughs> say to all of my teams, if you're gonna pay somebody to be on my team, it either has to be a person of color or a white woman. I don't remember the last time I paid a white man to do something, I'm not kidding. I counted, I think I have 20 people on my team who make money off of me, not a single white man in there. And I'm proud of that fact. I walk into every room whether it's a gala, whether it's a meeting, whether it's a conference or a restaurant, and I do what I call the race and gender inventory. I want to know how many people of color are in that room, how many white women are in that room, because that will determine how I move in that room and what I think of whoever put that room together. Uh -huh. uh, an important part of this show is Callie and I ask each other and we ask all of our guests, what you watching? And when we say what you watching, that means any kind of pop culture that you're consuming, TV, movies, books, podcasts, music videos, if you are consuming it, we are confident that it's cool and we want to know what it is. Sophia, what are you watching? So I just watched twice. <laughs> I took both my children on separate occasions to see Good Boys. I don't know if you've seen this movie. I haven't. I haven't. It is, I mean... My son and his friend and I were literally roaring with laughter in the movie theater. I was crying. It's like little boys who are learning about sex, right? Yes. And and uh. it's I think it's a really smart and it's a very timely Oh, I've seen the yes. trailer for this. That's a, right. A, it's a coming of age story, but I think that they deal with emotions in a really sophisticated way. Seth Rogen produced it. And um, I'm friends with this amazing actor and comedian named Lil Rel. I don't know if you know who he is. Yes. He, he, you know who he is. He was, he was in, in Get Out. He was in Get Out. Oh, he, was okay. the, he, was, he was the TSA agent. 
the first time you see him in this movie is the my favorite scene in the movie. I was literally crying. I was laughing so hard. So that's the movie that I saw recently. I also want to go see him in Britney Runs a Marathon. Uh, I just finished watching Sneaky Pete with my daughter, which was so much fun. I just finished the final season by myself of Orange is the New Black, um, which was devastating mm-hmm. and I really hope that Danielle Brooks wins awards because I think she's extraordinary. Um, what am I listening to in terms of podcasts? Uh, I listen to um, The Savvy Psychologist, but the one that I miss- listen to the most faithfully is The New York Times, The Daily. The Daily. I think it's... The Daily. Oh, Daily Daily. It's incredible. I'm Michael Barbaro. And this... Is the daily. It's the daily. But you know what's amazing? Have you heard 1619? Yes. Oh. Nicole Hannah-Jones. Holy it's shit. about uh, 400 years since the first slaves arrived oh in America. God. And the one that I'm listening to right now is about the impact of black music on music. And it is, Ooh. I think it's Wesley Moore. It is so oh. compelling. I just, I'm like, it's a Friday, it's a Friday. You know, but, Thank you so much for coming on the show. I really, really love your audio book. Thank you so much. It's been a delight talking to you. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. (laughs) (laughs) We're going to take the briefest of breaks. And when we come back, I'm going to ask Callie and she's going to ask me what What you watching. Before we get back to the show, I want to tell you about our new sponsor, Wolfie Vibes Publicity. If you're working on a new project, and find yourself in need of a kick-ass publicist who communicates well and works tirelessly to get you the coverage you're after, consider going to Wolfie Vibes Publicity. Wolfie Vibes Publicity is a female-owned and operated boutique PR firm that will get you where you need to be. And you'll even have fun in the process. Get in touch via wolfievibespublicity.com for details and quotes. And tell them that Pop-Tart sent you. Uh, essentially I started it because every female comedian I know was amazing and hardworking and hilarious and I knew would make great podcasts and every male comedian I know already had a podcast and was doing their own thing. (laughs) Hi, I'm Kate Moldenhauer, the founder of More Banana Podcasts, a comedy podcast network entirely produced, hosted, and led by women. We have shows about politics. Hey everybody, welcome to Let's Get Civical. When the Supreme Court puts stuff on their calendar, they use the word docket. So their Google Calendar is a docket. Is a docket. So technically I have a docket. You have a docket, we all have docket. We all have a docket. Sex? Welcome to my vagina, I'm Jesse Karen. This is Rebecca Frank. What were ancient Greek dildos made of, Jesse? They were made of padded leather and, yep, anointed with olive oil. (laughs) Scams? I'm Caitlin Smith. <laughs> and, and we, we love, love scams. scams. She tells them she's a German Russian heiress and she seems like she has a lot of money and people buy it. That's yeah. basically what's happening. So as soon as she got a loan, she would cash it as much as she could out before anybody caught on. Which amazing. Was so smart. I mean, so like, smart. <laughs> I mean, it's terrible, but like to take that money out immediately. Because women are actually pretty versatile and funny. More Banana is a network of women's voices, unfiltered and uninterrupted. Find us everywhere you get your podcasts and learn about our growing roster of shows at morebanana.com. And we're back. Hello. Kelly, I love talking to Sophia Chang so much. She was, she's intense. She's such an intense stare. She is a presence. Oh, it was amazing. She may, in fact, be the baddest bitch in the room. She definitely was the baddest bitch in this room. <laughs> but And we're some pretty bad bitches, so that's saying something. Yeah. <laughs> Callie, I need to know. I've got to know what you're watching. I want to know. Um, last night, I finished season two of Mindhunters. Ooh. Have you seen it? I haven't, but it's been recommended to us on this very program. So good. So it's these uh, FBI agents who had just started. It's based on true stories. Um, They started the Behavioral Science Unit, which is they investigate mass murder. So it's the first unit to look into serial killers. And this is... Like profiling and stuff? Mm -hmm. In 1980, 81. They're looking into like why they do it and how how you can spot them and you know just all that kind of stuff and so then they're looking for this killer in atlanta it was the atlantic atlanta child murders from 79 to 81 
where 28 people of color were killed. That's not a very long time for that many deaths. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's and wild. a lot of them were children. There was a couple adults, but by far and large, the most were children. And so they're trying to figure out who the the serial killer is. And most people don't even know the term serial killer. They keep having to explain it to people. And it was this guy. I'm going to, I mean, it's based on a true story. So once you say the murders, you can Wikipedia the damn thing. So it's this guy, Rain Williams. And he was only convicted of two of the fucking murders of adults. And then they haven't solved any of the other ones. They think he did it or maybe somebody else did it. Mm-hmm. And they just reopened the case this year. Probably because they knew they were going to get some looking at. Oh, right. This. And during it, it turns out that guy was like a photographer in real life. Yeah, that was his job, which I knew from my true crime calendar on my desk. <laughs> and so he would be at the scenes and he was always like get, he, tipping off the media and shit. Oh, because he wanted his killings to be famous. Yeah. And just because, you know, murderers could go back to the scene of the crime. Yeah. And always do that kind of shit. And so in it. While they're looking for him, they interview all these real serial killers that are in jail. So they talk to Charles Manson. Not real Charles Manson. This is what he's playing. In the show. Yeah. And then Tex Watson, who was one of the other killers. The son of Sam guy. um, The co-ed killer, which is super creepy. Um, And then Elmer Wayne Henley Jr., who was the... Helped the, the Candyman guy. Mm. He was one of the kid, the teens that was helping him kill everybody. Anyway, the show's so good because you know I love me some true crime. Uh huh. So I was eating it up. And then I also watched Our Boys. Have you seen this yet? No. Oh, this is so sad. This is a saddie. It um is based on a 2014 true story of the kidnapping and murder of three Israeli teenagers, um from by Hamas. And um so it's basically like. You know, just the war going on between mm-hmm. there and like v- villages and and group mentality. On a brighter note, yeah, Glow, Glow, season three, right? Yeah, that character She Wolf. You know, she's my favorite. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and she takes a couple acting classes, and the teacher like talks shit on her whole look. And so when they switch characters, she comes out like Glamazon. Oh goodness, it was such a glow up. I mean, that she's still herself, but she's like her acting through the roof it was so good <laughs> it's it's such a good season you know i just fucking love that show and then dark crystal age of resistance so is it true that the little baby from labyrinth created yes. all the puppets for the dark crystal it is true it is true it's like um being held being snatched by david bowie gave him supernatural powers <laughs> yeah it's so amazing the puppets and the artistry in this it's just like i could watch it a million times just to pick up all these little details in the it's i mean puppets to me are so much better than like whatever bullshit special effect you want to throw on something it was phenomenal i still i've only it's 10 episodes and they're each an hour that's a lot of puppets it's kind of slow moving too Uh but Man, it's good. Also, I haven't gotten there yet, but apparently there's there's a gay dad couple in the puppet world. Gay dad puppets? Not since Ernie and Bert has there been such a le- legendary moment in gay puppet culture. Yes. So it that is is a must watch. All right. And what are you watching? I'm so glad you ask. You know what, Callie? I'm gonna start off with. A- oh, I forgot. Oh, sorry. Very Go ahead. Exciting party i went to tell me about your exciting party it was the flaming hot cheetos cheetos flaming hope couture party so it was the cheetos fashion show yes it was of che- the century of the century ashanti was there did she wear cheetos fashion or was she just she was wearing a really awesome black dress she was not but i think she's friends with sweetie sweetie oh sweetie sweetie she performed She's not very good live. Oh, bless her she heart. She was lip syncing and not on point. Mm. So perhaps she can sing, but she cannot lip sync for her life. Mm. But I would have had a trouble at that party because from what you said, there were a lot of Flamin' Hot Cheetos around to eat. Mm-hmm. And they're so delicious, but they give me spilkis. And I don't think oh. I would have been able to resist. Dude, the extra, extra hot are so hot it is so fucking hot i had like three of them and my face started sweating i i was like this is just extra and i've got hot sauce in my bag swag (laughs) but still the attention to detail at this party was insane whoever 
this PR group is, they are epic. There was Cheetos, like it was like makeup booths, and all the brushes are Cheetos colored. They had purse hooks that were the Cheetos guy. They had Chester Cheetah purse hooks. Yes, custom made <gasps> um, lights, like um, light signs, light up signs. That said, looking like a snack and stuff. Oh, nice. I want to live in flame and hot Cheeto Dude, world. it was so amazing. And then they rimmed all the cocktail cups with Cheetos. <laughs> you said rimmed. <laughs> the rimming station. So They had a whole rimming station? <laughs> no, this was, was a party. They did have like a whole like counter of different. <laughs> it was like a candy counter full of different cheese and you could, Cheetos and you could just get all the flavors. It was insane. Now back to you, boo. I Thanks. I now that you've important. made me... Thoroughly jalous. <laughs> uh, yeah, I wanted to start with an, a true erotic confession about myself. Oh, so like flaming hot Cheetos confession. What's a flaming hot Cheetos erotic confession? Is that I like to see sexuality in my pop culture, but not too much. Mm-hmm. You know, like I, I would say that like Skinamax uh, After Dark was very formative for me and things that are evocative of that like almost USA porny but up all night. yeah USA Up All Night like almost porny but like not Elvira-ish. at all just like just porny adjacent but still like everyone's wearing their underwear <laughs> like that's my lane I think just because you know I was like the 80s were very formative for me and that's just where I live but there's this show that um, ran from 2012 to 2016 on Investigation Discovery and is now on Amazon Prime called Scorned Love Kills. Oh, I, and I would like this. the intro, it just says Scorned, and then there's flames, much like what you described Flaming at the Cheetos party. And then a, a knife comes from above and slices through the word scorned and then underneath it, it says Love Kills. This is very scream. And then... <laughs> And it's one of these true crime reenactment shows about, I basically call it the domestic violence show because that's what it boils down to. It's basically a romantic couple in which one person in the couple kills the other person. The thing is, is that they go through like the people's entire sexual history before the murder just as an excuse to show people having sex so it'll be like so it's reenactment sex but they also will show you like the real people in like photographs or like in news clippings just so you know who the real people are and then they have people who are way 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 hotter than the real people <laughs> reenacting their lives in ways that are sometimes relevant to the crime, but not always. So it'll be like, in high school, Jeanette was totally infatuated with the he- the captain of the football team. And then they'll just show them having sex for a while. And then they'll say, <laughs> but their love wouldn't last. And it was the man that she dated after that. That would <laughs> so unnecessary. That oh would spell doom and disaster for her later on. But first, she had an affair with the owner of a pet store, and then you see <laughs> them having sex for a while, and then finally it gets to like the crime. But before you get to the crime, like anybody that anybody involved with this crime has had sex with before the crime, you get to see it reenacted. Oh my God. With the fanciest underpants. If I ever committed a crime, that would be the longest show ever. (laughs) (laughs) If you like trashy, like I like trashy and true crime, they're two great tastes that taste great together. I don't want you to think that I'm a ghoul. I'm not turned on by people getting murderized, but I am interested in true crime. And up until the crime, there's just a lot of gratuitous sex. That sounds amazing. Even though it sounds like it's just made for dudes to jack it to, I really feel like it's made for women. Like there's just well, women like love a, a true crime show. Women love true crime, and th- and there's like a softness and attention to relationship detail that mm. I find. I think maybe like men would find boring, and they would just rather watch porn. Like I really feel like it's made for women, but it is horny as hell. Do you see dude ass? You see dude ass in in like tidy underpants. You don't actually see butt steak. Uh, but you do see like um you know like a a naked male back thrusting vigorously. Ah, uh, the classic scene. Yeah, and like side boob. 
Like the good Tommy Wiseau. It's a yes. Tommy Wiseau shot. There are six seasons of this show. Holy shit. And they're on Amazon. I'm not sure if all of the seasons are on Amazon Prime, but there's enough. Something that I did not find really legitimately funny, and I, <laughs> I've seen chatter on the internet on, in both regards uh, to this show, is Dave Chappelle came out uh, with his latest Netflix stand-up special. I saw this. Dave Chappelle Sticks and Stones. And, you know, there's a lot of talk about, like, he can't say that. He shouldn't be able to say that, blah, blah, blah. I firmly believe that Dave Chappelle should say whatever he wants to say. Totally. He can say whatever he wants to say. He should remain completely uncensored as he rides out his Netflix multi-special contract. Oh, I didn't realize he, is, he had a multi-special. Yeah, he, is, he has this huge Netflix contract where he just... This one... Sticks and Stones, I believe, is the fifth Netflix comedy special. Whoa, I've missed a lot. Though. And, uh, yeah, he has a this big contract with them, and he's going to keep making stand-up specials, and that's fine. Um, he joked about um, not believing Michael Jackson's accusers. He joked about um r kelly he joked about the lgbt community and how annoying trans people are who are, are f- a frequent target of his i actually uh, liked the the car the metaphor car metaphor but i just didn't find that the jokes that fine. his delivery is great i like when he laugh makes himself laugh That's and then he has to, to take watch. a lap around the stage yeah he made himself laugh but a lot of them i was like nah. I come to this having desperately loved the Chappelle show so much. I loved every episode. It stands up to multiple watchings over and over again. Every episode of the Chappelle show is brilliant, and I loved all of them. Um, The true Hollywood stories in the Chappelle show were the best. Um, And I can honestly tell you that um, I've never laughed less at Dave Chappelle (laughs) than I have for Sticks and Stones. pretty funny i laughed i think at that he's losing me he's turning into a square older man who can't yeah he was trying like with the times oh your kids with all your letters and it's like okay yeah he is not making me laugh he i can see why people are irritated um and i you know, it would be one thing if he was being super inappropriate and was making me laugh anyway. Right. I mean. But he's not making me laugh anyway. He's just. Um, I think it's like that. Punching whole, down. And I don't like it. That whole punching down thing is like when people talk about rape jokes. I don't think a rape joke is fucking hilarious as long as the butt of the joke is the rapist. Yeah. I mean, joking about how people who have come forward to talk about their sexual abuse are lying. Isn't funny to me. It's not going to be funny to me. No. Um, yeah. I laughed a couple times, but I've had the same takeaway as you. I believe that a lot of the edginess just fell flat and felt dated. Mm-hmm. And felt like an old man. It was just like, listening. like an old man who's just complaining old about man complaining kids who want you to not call them slurs. Um, so yeah, that's, I'm going to give Dave Chappelle sticks and stones a thumbs down. I'm disillusioned. I have loved him in the past and I, um, hope to love him again someday, but he needs to get his fucking act together. (laughs) Scorned gets, uh, two tits up. Cause that's what it shows over and over and over again. It is the flaming hot Cheetos of television (laughs) and it's very tasty. And that my friend is what. I have been watching. What a lovely voyage. Thanks so much to our producers, Kate Moldenauer and Jesse Karen at More Banana Productions. And of course, our luscious audio engineer, Logan Del Fuego. <laughs> Muy caliente. And to our girl gang at Bust Magazine. You can find me on Twitter at Emily Rems. You cannot find Callie on the socials, so don't even try. Well, I am there, you know, just on the low, watching Chris. Chrissy Teigen take She's down the just president. Following Chrissy Teigen, calling the president a pussy ass bitch. Pussy ass bitch, it's the best. But you can't find Callie. Only oh, she can find Oh, and Twitter you. wouldn't let that trend, so people had to change the thing to P S P A S B to the acronym. 
<laughs> P-A-B, pussy ass bitch. <laughs> but we all know. We all know. We know the truth. You already know. You already know. He a pussy ass bitch. <laughs> uh, you can email both of us. I'm at emilyrams at bus.com. Callie W at bus.com. And you can learn more about the show at bus.com slash Pop-Tarts. I also need to mention that if you leave a five-star rating and then review us nicely on Apple Podcasts, and then you write to Callie or I, emilyrams at bus.com, Callie W at bus.com, and say, hey, my screen name is Pussy Ass Bitch, (laughs) and I just rated you guys on Apple Podcasts, check it out, and we like check it out and we like it, then we'll write back to you and be like, hey, do you want a free subscription to Bust Magazine? And you'll be like, yeah. And then I'll be like, cool. And then you'll be like, here's my address. And I'll be like, awesome. And then I'm going to give the address to Callie. And Callie's going to type a little type typey type steen on her magical computer. And you will have a one-year subscription to Bust Magazine. Yeah, and then you should tell your friend filthy, filthy Mouth Wife. Is that what he was Yeah, then it? ask hashtag Filthy Mouth Wife <laughs> to, do to get... Thing. To do it, and then they might also get a free subscription to Bust Magazine. You never know how many we're going to give out. It all depends on us and how <laughs> we feel, and really on you and how you feel and how you so express don't be a pussy ass bitch your about opinions it. about us. Please rate and review this podcast. It, we super duper appreciate it. It really helps us get the word out. Until next time. Mwah. Mwah.